Welcome to the Cake Sugar Coach podcast. Join me each week as I interview experts who will share the science of sugar, sugar addiction, and different approaches to recovery. We hope to empower you with the information and inspiration, insights, and strategies you need to break up with sugar and fall in love with healthy whole foods so you can prevent and reverse chronic disease, lose weight, boost your mood, and energy. Feel free to go to my website for details on my coaching programs and to access free resources, kicksugarcoach.com. Welcome, everybody. I have with me today a friend and a colleague and a world expert on the topic of sugar and sugar addiction recovery. And in addition, she's a chef, world-renowned, actually, author of the book called Return to Food, which is a beautiful book, partly because um, she illustrates her own, (laughs) she did her own illustrations. It's just really, really personal. It's an amazing little book. If you've not read Return to Food, be sure to get a copy of that. She's also walking the path of recovery. She's a TEDx Tokyo speaker. She's the Victorian Chair of Nutrition Australia. This was years ago. What was that? She was also the co-founder of the World Wellness Summit years ago, did that as well. And more recently, she's launched her own supplement line called Living Immunity. And she has a website and coaching programs that talk about the sweet freedom that people get on the other side of sugar addiction. So welcome, Sherry. Thank you for inviting me, Florence. I really appreciate not just the work that you do, but the fact that you open up um, your practice to so many other people for your for your audience. It's so important to know that at this point in time, you're almost being left behind if you don't if you're not getting on the bandwagon of getting onto the whole food bandwagon, really understanding what refined carbohydrates are doing to our bodies and our minds, our our children, our planet, like our, our cognitive abilities, everything. It's all so important that we all catch on. And why don't we go back in history to your early days of getting hooked into sugar? Do you have some early memories of that suggest the evidence of addiction right, right back to childhood? Well, I have my first distinct memory with sugar, almost killing me, was a lifesaver. The irony of I almost choked to death on a lifesaver is not lost on me. <laughs> so, and that's one of my earliest memories. So, and it was in a house where I was younger than two years of age. So, um, so I have that distinct memory. And then I remember um, stealing Tang, the powder from the kitchen and going, I remember being in someone's backyard, like alone and putting my, licking my finger and, and eating the Tang. And so I have, you know, early history of, of sugar addiction. And then when I was 14, I was experiencing massive, massive depression diagnosed with hypoglycemia and um, definitely knew sugar played a part and to the point of eating so much sugar that my vision was acutely affected. I remember driving. Um, I just got my license at 16 and the sunshine was so bright. I I couldn't drive without, you know, welling up with tears because, and that was, you know, impacted by my sugar addiction. I know that for sure. And then um, years later, when I was living in Australia and I was in a marriage where I was really, really lonely and I used sugar to be my companion. And there were days where I was waking up with, you know, eating up to a liter of Sara Lee ultra chocolate ice cream in the morning and not stopping sugar all day. Mm-hmm. 
So, and waking up with a sugar coma, you know, after 10 hours of sleep and all those kinds of things. So I have a, and I was twice my size. So, you know, it didn't just show on the outside. It was for me, the bigger grief was what was actually happening inside. Right. So by the time you were 14, you had depression. What time, at, at what age were you starting to gain weight? Um, I, I was on the diet treadmill. i started at 14, even though by today's standards, I would have been considered slender. <laughs> um, just that whole mentality, you know, um, I remember sitting on the toilet and thinking of the, the special K commercial, if you can pinch an inch. Well, I didn't understand that skinfold <laughs> wasn't what they were talking about. Wow. Um, yeah. So, but the weight game really came in Australia when I was, I was away from my family, my, you know, the networks that I'd grown up with and my husband traveled two weeks out of the month and, and, uh, you know, had his full on life that he wasn't willing to really give up when we were together. So I was lonely and I, you know, I was, I was, I was seeking, I was still at that time seeking meaning in life and all those kinds of things. And sugar, sugar place replaced a lot of that. Yeah, totally. Um, when, what is your earliest memory of trying to break up with it and realizing this is a problem I need to cut back or eliminate? Well, because I was so depressed, I was, uh, we saw a psychiatrist or I, I believe it was a psychiatrist and not a psychologist. Fortunately, he diagnosed me with hypoglycemia. So it was definitely a sugar issue. And we started a hypoglycemic diet, you know, so I remember blending whipping cream, bananas, and artificial sweetener in a, in a blender for a dessert. <laughs> um, and then horrible things like Nutrisystem, where you were at that point, you know, when you're a full-on sugar addict, anything alkalizing is, is terrible um, tasting. And especially, I was a super taster, so I was born with dramatically more, significantly more taste buds than the average person. So at home, the terrible food that we had tasted worse to me and anything decent tasted much better. So it was, you know, it was, it was like uh, culinary bipolar. How do you know you have more uh, taste receptors? Um, well, it's, it's connected with um, smell and it's basically like when you start to do testing, um, I can just pick up things in food that most people can't, um, uh, yeah. And, and smell too. And even just to the point of I've done blind tastings on water. Um, I've done blind tastings with organic versus conventional food. And, uh, I, I don't think necessarily the organic conventional is connected to taste, but it's more just, um, a you know, receptor, but I, you know, I have a 95% kind of accuracy rate. Um, wow. yeah. And just, just, you know, the, over the years, it took me years to actually figure that out. And when I found out there was such a thing as super tasters, I was curious. And then I started to do the research and the case. And the reason that intrigues me is I once in some obscure little spot had heard that there was some evidence that individuals that really like sugar really respond to it and struggle with it have more sweet receptor sites i've never seen this i've never seen anything since do you know anything about that that i don't know yeah i don't know but it it totally makes sense and i just think we all have genetic vulnerabilities and variability 
So like certain drugs don't do anything for certain people, you know, drug addicts can, can the heroin's their thing and cocaine just doesn't do it for them. Right. Mm -hmm. So we all have different body and brain chemistry and it makes perfect sense that some people are going to have more of an addictive personality based on physiology. And some people it's going to be more based on psychology or spirituality. Totally. So you're 14 years old, you're really depressed, depressed enough that your parents bring you to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist says you're just hypoglycemic mm-hmm. and gets you started on trying to eat better. Yes. Um, and then what happened from there? Like, yeah, what happened from there? Well, I, I think, um, I, you know, I, I didn't have the same, um, level of sugar consumption. And, and I, I also want to say, I'm so grateful that doctor didn't put me on drugs. Right. You know, like today, you know, 14 year old girl experiencing depression would definitely be given, um, medication that's even worse than sugar, in my opinion. Mm. Um, so it, you know, I just, you know, I just, I went along, I, you know, tried certain diets and things like that, but I don't think I really addressed my sugar addiction until I, I, I honestly, I, I tried a few diets over the years. I found fit for life when I was about 18 or 19, tried that for a little while. I remember, you know, I was studying to become a missionary and living in a basement suite with another girl who was also, you know, studying. And, you know, my food budget at that time was $10 a week. (laughs) And I spent $2 of that budget on an avocado and had no idea how to pick an avocado. It was rock hard and tasted like soap. And it was like, yeah, (laughs) it was yeah terrible experience. But I think really I addressed my sugar addiction only when I got to twice my size and I was just miserable. I just literally, I went to a doctor and I went to the doctor knowing I knew 100% in my gut that it was sugar. That was my problem. And he prescribed me antidepressants and I took one or two of them and just everything in my body says, don't do this. This is not the solution. Um, And I, you know, in hindsight, I was critical of that doctor, but at the same time, I knew what my problem was. I knew what the solution was. I just didn't want to do the work. I didn't, I wasn't ready to break up with sugar because, you know, there was breaking up with sugar um, felt like too much of a sacrifice when I still felt like, you know, my life was, it was like losing a best friend, you know, the best friend that never left you, that never abandoned you. Um, I wasn't ready for that then. And it was only really um, in earnest when I was facing my divorce that I actually started to give up sugar. And then that was purely from a diet point of view. Mm. I only started to do the mental, emotional, and spiritual work that truly, for me, gave me that what I call sweet freedom. Um, that's something that I did uh, later on. And it was it was it took me a year, years. I'm, I was, I believe I'm a slow learner. Um, and then it, it took working with clients to recognize my own vulnerabilities, um, you know, seeing in them my own vulnerabilities. And also, like, when I had my cooking school, I would, you know, work with people on the getting cooking piece, and that would help them, you know, on a certain level. I actually think teaching people how to cook is way more important than um, the diet mechanics of the diet, because you can work that out. Um, But telling them what they should eat and shouldn't eat gives them about this much success 
helping them to actually prepare their own food from scratch gives them this much success. And then I moved into more of a philosophical approach around food and understanding, you know, how we're meant to eat as the human species. And when I started to teach that, people got it on an intellectual level that the whole food pyramid and the keto, you know, that kind of diet mentality could never fix. Understanding and how we're supposed to eat as a human being. And it's it's species-specific. It's different depending on where we live in the world. It's, you know, lots of different factors. But when I then moved into understanding that there were... I wasn't just physically malnourished when I was a sugar addict. I was mentally malnourished, emotionally, and spiritually. And I had toxic influences. I was ingesting things spiritually, mentally, and emotionally that were toxic. And it was only until I started to dissect and I could, you know, see, it was easier to see it in clients than, you know, face my own kind of uh, demons. But when I started to work with clients and then go, okay, you've got all these toxic influences, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, how about we start to remove those and bring in nourishing things? And that approach for me was helpful because when we started working on those other quadrants, what I refer to as hypernourishment, it just became so much easier to make the changes in that physical area because your dependency on the drug of sugar, you know, or, you know, other foods that you give us, you know, opiate rushes, you know, like the, the wheat and um, dairy and that kind of thing. You weren't clinging to that so much because you had this nourishment in each of these other areas. Mm, incredible. How old were you when you reached that your double your size, like your highest weight? About 24, 24, 25, I think. So that's what, was it then that you started to turn things around? And um, No, it was, uh, so I had a cooking school in Melbourne and oh. I, I had a way of, of teaching that dietitians and doctors who worked in the weight management area referred clients to me. Um, and so for me, I was also studying um, nutrition, health and behavioral sciences at Deakin University. And that was a big wake up for me. I was the Victorian chair of Nutrition Australia. I felt I should probably have, you know, more qualifications around it. And between understanding how the nutrition world works and universities and how they're basically, you know, the problem with our medical system right now is that it's run by pharmaceutical companies. The problem with universities um, and dietitians and nutritionists is that it's run by food companies. And if you go into diet, you know, to be a dietitian, drug companies get involved and, and now supplement companies. And so industry drives those, the education that you get in schools. And I could see the folly in all of that. And so I just thought, if I'm confused as the, you know, chair of nutri- Victorian chair of Nutrition Australia, as someone, you know, who studied university and my lectures and professors, Honestly, they did not have the answers. They were just teaching from books. And there was a lot of it that you could justify intellectually, but didn't really make sense. And so I went on a path to actually, it was in hindsight, I have words for it. Then I just wanted to end nutritional confusion. Um, And for me, it was starting to understand how the healthiest cultures on the planet worked. And consistent with every single one of these healthy, longest living cultures is they didn't have processed food. Right. 
people like to identify, oh, well, they had this nutrient or they had this nutrient. Well, it varied all over the world. You know, in the Arctic, you know, there were Inuits who 80% of their diet was seal blubber, right? So you can't tell me that they needed so much, you know, <laughs> macro micronutrients to a specific recipe. It wasn't about that. The common denominator was the complete absence of highly processed food. Right, right. So when you um, first started to get your your own feet under you around recognizing sugar is the problem and I need to break up with sugar and I need to learn how to eat whole foods. Um, what, what was that like? I mean, how much weight did you have to lose? So I, I never stepped on a scale. There, there's two things. There's, I can only really find two or three pictures of me um, at my biggest. And even then, um, I can tell you I was wearing a size 16 pants uh, I'm five foot two, so that meant I was almost spherical, right? Okay, so I, you know, that that was really large. Um, but uh, I never weighed myself, and and to be qu- quite honest, to this date, I don't. I've not had a scale in my house because I don't believe that scales actually measure are measures of health. Right. Um, so, but you knew that you needed to lose some weight and you started to do that. And how long did it take for you to feel like this is just happening and I can let this go and I can throw the scale away. It's, I can let, I can let go of the, the outcome, the weight loss outcome. Yeah. Well, I'd thrown the scale away long before that. I just, um, I, I just don't believe scales are a healthy, healthy tool. Um, and no traditional culture on the planet has a scale. Like if you went into, you know, these healthy, long living cultures and you say, okay, if you want to get healthy, you need to weigh yourself. They would look at you like you were from a different planet. Um, so I, I was not able to give up sugar right away. Like I'm, you know, the cold turkey thing never worked for me and my personality. But what I did start to do was I, I, I started to run and, you know, I was big when I was running and um, it was humiliating, you know, in Australia, I don't know you know much about the culture, but I had, you know, young boys in cars yelling, move your fat ass or get your fat ass off the road and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, um, I was just reached this, this point where I was just so fed up with it. And I just started to run, I got up to running like 20 kilometers. Um, and then what I found is that the healthier my body got, the cleaner it got just purely by, you know, the lymphatic system, you know, working and cleansing out, I started to become attracted to healthier foods. I craved healthier foods. And, um, and I know for some people, they actually have to start the food before they get the movement. And this is why it's so important to, you know, that Shakespeare quote, this above all to thine own self be true, is to find out what works for you, because there is no universal, you know, treatment or recipe that works for every single person. And the important thing is just to keep working at it and trying things and, and do more of what works and less of what doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when was it, when was the turning point? Was there a turning point that you can kind of point to, to say that was a pivot for me? Like I, yeah, no, no, for me, it was just that continually waking up feeling so terrible about myself. I was just tired of it. It was, you know, there was no dramatic aha moment or anything like that. It was just I'd reached a level of of being completely tired with how pathetic my body and my life was. And there was also this other thing is I just, I remember thinking, 
I can't believe how healthy I am given how bad I eat. Like <laughs> I've been given some incredible genetics, you know, to be able to, to not be hospitalized based on what I was eating. And then I, I just started looking and thought, you have an incredible body. Like you're not taking care of it. You're dishonoring it, you know? Um, and, and through all of this, I did work on the, the inner stuff, you know, the, the feelings of, uh, low self-worth and, and, and I had a lot of trauma from my childhood to heal too. So I, I was working on that. Let's go there. Cause I think that's a piece that all of us have to do as we're, yeah. as we're walking the path, right? We, we, we're so focused on just trying to get sugar-free to stop the pain, yeah. stop the self-harm. And then we're not always aware that after that, we stabilize. It's like, I call it triage, getting people off sugar. It's like we stop the bleeding yeah. <laughs> and then we stabilize you. And then we do the healing, you know, strengthening healing journey piece of it. And everyone, there's so many different tools and approaches to doing that trauma recovery work. What were some of the ones uh, the approaches that you took and what worked the best for you? I, I did a lot, you know, um, I did deep things like the Hoffman process, but I honestly, I have a memory. There's a family services in Australia. I think it's a private company with some government funding, but there is a therapist there and her name was Sylvia. And I honestly believe she was insightful but it was her compassion. It was her compassion. And she saw, you know, she saw my worthiness when I didn't see it. And to be quite honest, that was the most healing thing is to have someone who could help you process thoughts and really point out when your thinking wasn't helpful to you. But to have that depth of compassion and true caring, like for a human, that was probably the most healing healing piece out of all of it. And I did like the, I think I mentioned the Hoffman process. Um, I did, you know, um, all the, the screaming therapy and all those kinds of things. Um, and then I also believe there is a part of us where we can self heal. We, and I think the other work is really important, but I also think that we as humans have to understand our own power for self-healing and that coaches are helpful and useful. And I think that's an important part of the process, but you have to take ownership and understand that even the best coach in the world won't heal you. You have to actually heal yourself. And that I, I also believe in meditation and prayer. And I truly believe that asking for, for guidance and, you know, divine guidance and understanding and wisdom, like that's something I pray for every single day, you know, to be kind, loving, and wise. Those are my, that's my mantra, you know? Um, and I think that process of being kind, loving, and seeking wisdom um, to yourself, not just to other people, was essential in the process of healing for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What's one thing you never want to forget about what it was like when you were, when you were addicted to sugar? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever thought, never want to forget. You know, it's interesting. What came up for me initially is not what I don't want to forget, but I, I didn't think about it. But sugar actually saved my life at one point. Um, I was also doing IVF, in vitro fertility. Um, that was, I was assaulted in Italy in 1988 and um, 
my, um, you know, I was, my fertility was affected by that. And we had friends at the time who started to get pregnant at the same time as us, and they'd already had a baby. And um, Margaret, who's just the sweetest, dearest soul and, you know, like an amazing mother, she respectfully phoned me to say, I want you to hear this from us, to, from me personally first. And she had disclosed that she was pregnant with her second child. And I'd had an IVF, you know, failed attempt at that time. And I couldn't even, I couldn't even make it through the call to, you know, to, you know, that kind of you buckle up when you pretend, oh, congratulations and all that kind of stuff like that. I, and I hung up the phone and I, I remember sliding down the wall. Um, and that was when we still had a phone that was connected to a recorded. <laughs> yes. Um, I remember sliding down the wall and I, I basically drank myself to the point where I passed out. Wow. And it was alcohol and sugar, but I honestly feel that had I not done that, I may have taken my own life. Like, wow. And so, um, so I think if, I, I I think if I was to say is that as much as you f- might feel like sugar is this noose around your neck, that you've chosen of all the coping mechanisms drug wise, you know, you've, you haven't chosen the most dangerous and most destructive and don't get me wrong. I know it is, it can be dangerous for certain bodies and it, it definitely is destructive for all bodies but you chose one of the safer ones and there was a reason you chose that and it could actually be keeping you alive. Um, and that it's also not anesthetizing you so badly that you can't actually see that there is a way out. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And what's one thing that you always want to remember or that you would, the best thing, the thing that, if you had to pick one thing, the greatest highlight about being on the other side of sugar addiction Mm. now in your life. Yeah. Well, the, I named my business sweet freedom because it really does make you feel free. And for me, I'm, I still have chocolate. Like I have some of the world's best chocolate. (laughs) Right. And I, I always joke. I say chocolate is God's way of saying he loves us and wants us to be happy. (laughs) So, and I'd rather live to 110 with chocolate than 140 without it. (laughs) So there's choices that we make, but it is the freedom that knowing that sugar does not control me and that if I, I can go, you know, 14 days or a month without having a bit of chocolate. Um, and I'm not like, where is it? I need it. You know? Um, so that is the best piece is that there's freedom on the other side and, I think just before we got on, I, I remember you saying that, you know, the, the process of being sugar-free can be more painful because more raw, because you're actually feeling, you're not anesthetizing yourself with a substance and that kind of thing. And I have come to respect this, the whole spectrum of my feelings and not just the the happy ones. And I think that is highly problematic in, in the world that we live in as, you know, as a human species in the new age movement and, you know, even in certain, um, uh, psychological circles is we can just attribute value and significance to our happy emotions. Um, and I think there's, there's a beauty in when you see something that causes you sadness that you can actually feel that and move through it and you don't have to live there. 
Mm-hmm. And you can have righteous anger at terrible injustices in the world and you can feel that. And literally the next moment, something can catch your eye and, and or ear and be, you'd be laughing because that is the natural response to hearing something funny, even though you might be grieving something in that moment. And I think that's, that's the beauty is that when you're sober, you get the full human experience. I also appreciate that the human experience they say where spiritual beings having this human experience is a very dense, it's a heavy experience. It's physical. We're limited by our physical bodies. Um, and that it's when things are difficult, it's very tempting and desirable to want to be lifted from this denseness, this heaviness, this pain that we feel as humans. But what I've always known is that anytime I anesthetize with a substance, there's always a consequence to that. And it makes my human experience less enjoyable by anesthetizing myself, you know, as I have, you know, have done. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Is there anything more you would like to add on the topic of, you know, this is going to be heard by people who are either on the path and are trying to keep moving forward, you know, eating whole foods and honoring their bodies and healing in body, mind, and spirit, or people who are thinking, I can't do this. I wish I could do what Sherry did, right? That any, any words of wisdom or other pieces of the puzzle that you'd like to talk about? Well, I was really slow to the supplementation piece. Uh, I, you know, I was in Australia, Melbourne, year round farmer's market, organic biodynamic food, which is even better than organic. I, there weren't glyphosates, you know, anywhere in my diet. Um, there, you know, I, I was eating exceptionally clean and it wasn't until I moved back to Canada that I started to experience, you know, some issues where, uh, I was not able to get everything I needed. In fact, at one point I was experiencing depression and I'm like, there's nothing in my life that should be causing depression right now. So I went and had my, um, vitamin and mineral profile, my blood's taken to actually assess that. And one of my students, former students, she actually did the consultation after when I got my blood work and she, she was like very serious. And she said, Sherry, we see homeless people with higher vitamin D levels than you have. And I said, well, in fairness, they do get out in the sun a lot more than I do. (laughs) Um, and ever since that moment, you know, in Canada, particularly Vancouver, where you don't get sun a lot. And because I'd been in Australia for 22 years, your body gets used to a certain amount of sunlight. So then when you go to um, another country that doesn't have the sunlight, it can actually take years before it, it, it adjusts. So that was one instance where I, I kind of twigged. And that's when I started to do research. So that was six years ago now. And I started to do research around supplementation and the value of it. Because up until that time, I'd not had any experience where it had actually worked. And um, in Australia, I was on, I was a, what you call a celebrity chef nutritionist. So I was on television all the time and I was in the media, I had columns in glossy magazines. So I would be approached weekly by supplement companies and MLMs to promote their products. And I always said no, because one, they never made a difference for me and my body. And two, uh, I didn't like the idea of prescribing stuff, no matter, you know, not really understanding people's physiology and prescribing stuff willy nilly. And third was, um, 
what, well, it wasn't working for me. The third was, um, and it's just escaped me. There's, uh, um, oh, they gave lip service to the whole food piece, right? So I'm, I'm a firm believer in getting the foundation of your eating right. And they just gave lip service to it. So when I started to do my research, I really wanted something that helped with sugar cravings. You know, that was, that was the big thing because I know for some people, um, exercise and diet, they're so far down that spiral that they actually need a, like a, a hand, you know, someone to help lift them out of that spiral um, and to get them to the level where they're even, you know, can start to cognitively work on those other pieces. So getting the, the mineral, vitamin and mineral uh, ratio in your body to, you know, to even just, you know, the basics is really important because as you know, more than most, how sugar and refined foods deplete your body from vitamins and minerals. And they mess with your brain chemistry. They mess with your gut, which is, you know, 80% of your immune system. So that's, that's kind of the piece that I would find, find supplements that are really good quality. There's so many bad supplements out there, which is why they never worked for me. Even if they're expensive from a multi-level marketing company, not all of them are legitimate. Um, and find a practitioner who can actually really help you not only get really good quality supplements, but help you understand what it is your body needs and isn't just wanting to sell you stuff to make money. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go right into how on earth did you get started on doing starting your own supplement company? Yeah, well, as you know, it's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of work, a lot of research. There's an investment, not just financially, but of time. Um, and I just decided one of the things is that I, um, I, last year I didn't want my parents going into a nursing home. My mother was disabled by a fluoroquinolone antibiotic. And so my father had been caring for her for the last five years. He couldn't do that anymore. And so I actually moved to help take care of them. And I knew I needed to actually work a bit differently than I had in the past because my income came from speaking and, you know, 80% of it came from speaking at conferences and on stages and that disappeared overnight. And they said, basically, it's going to take years for that to, to come back. So I knew I had to actually create a different, you know, way of actually doing things. And I, I wanted to work on the supplements, but frankly, it was so hard. There was so much to it. I didn't have, it was much easier to just get up on a stage and be paid five or $8,000, <laughs> then start a supplement line. So I was really kind of put in a situation where I had to create a, a source of income for myself. Um, and the, the other thing is, is that I didn't want, um, I didn't want to be selling um, things that I, I didn't actually have control over, you know, um, quality wise. And I didn't want to be, beholden to a company that demands that you sell at this level and sell stuff to people that they don't need and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just bit the bullet and put in the work and, and I'd done a bunch of research beforehand. So I had a lot of the pieces together mm -hmm. um, so that when, when I did actually sit down and do the work, it, it did actually happen. It felt like it was taking, um, decades but right yes and what what benefits do you see for people who are sugar addicted and what what supplements in particular would you recommend that people look yeah. at well i have one called sweet freedom that was that was actually the the blend that um i had been working on six years prior that i i just knew 
that there were things that could actually help. But it's the you need the basic um, minerals, you know, particularly you need things like chromium and magnesium. You know, there's there's a a lot to it, and getting them in the right ratio, getting the right quality of them, and then I I have a blend. It's called Sweet Freedom. And um, it has gymnema. It has a lot of those other things that I mentioned in it. Um, and I can honestly say that my desire for sugar has lessened since I have have taken it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I obviously have other clients who are actually on it. So the most important thing that I would say to anyone when you um, make sure that these are clean supplements, we're finding now, you see there's a trend now and, and there's all kinds of people who are crushing up their vitamins or dissolving their vitamins and finding things like graphene oxide in them. And we're talking about brands that people know, you know, have trusted for years. So, um, I, and honestly, you know, cause I'm not physically in, you know, in a laboratory making these, um, I was scared to, to test, you know, my supplements for graphene oxide. Um, cause I thought I'd built all this and did all this, but you know, I, I knew like, it's a decision that I've made for all my life. I'd rather, you know, face walking completely away from something than selling something that, that wouldn't be serving people. So you want, you want to really know that these are good quality. And more importantly, you want to work with someone who actually understands supplements um, to, and understands your body, your body chemistry, your history, contraindications, all of those things. And that's why I'm hesitant to just say, okay, take this, this, and yeah. this without knowing someone. Yeah. And years ago, I like I, I I made a video. Um, I'm making a video for each one of my products and um, an introductory video. I said I don't want to be selling supplements. Like honestly, I want the whole world to eat biodynamic food and not have glyphosate in our food and not have all these you know temptations around us. So we're getting everything that we're need needing and that we're not getting what we don't need. In the absence of that. Um, it's really important we actually find our way back to, you know, the homeostasis, you know, and, and having our body where it is. But I, when I'm working with people, there's three things that I, I think is absolutely essential. Number one, if you don't get the crap out, <laughs> you're throwing away good money if you do invest. Um, and two, if you don't you know, start to eat real healing, nourishing, life-giving, you know, um, electromagnetic, you know, high-frequency food, um, again, you're just, you're throwing, you know, money at the problem. But if you actually start to take a supplement regime that's based on your chemistry that that you know will work with you, and you start to listen to your body, because years ago, we used to have medicine men and medicine women who literally spent decades learning from their ancestors or the medicine man or woman in their tribe. And what happened is not only did they have natural ingredients to work with, which I think is absolutely essential than a lot of extracts and um, things that are, you know, highly processed. So in the supplements, I'm not a big fan of highly processed ingredients because I believe the ingredients that come from the land and from good soil are going to be more powerful for healing than extracts. But that medicine man or medicine woman knew you. They knew your history. They were grounded and connected to the land. They were grounded and connected to all the modalities of healing that they had to them. And they had what we would call today, they would have been a medical intuitive. So they knew things about your body by checking in with you and reading your body. Um, It's, you know, it's not just a woo-woo thing anymore. There's actually, you know, science behind this. 
And I think we need to return to that as practitioners and coaches. And I know, I know for a fact, Florence, that when you get into that space and you're working with a client, you tap into brilliance that shocks even you, right? You have those moments where you're like, where did that come from? Right. And it's because we have access to a lot more knowledge and in intelligence when, when we tap into that which is greater than us and that which is around us rather than just this head knowledge. So find find someone who, you know, who really gets that and works with you and is kind and compassionate and their bottom line is not money. Yeah, beautiful. Any final words you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up today? Well. Uh, I think probably one of the biggest pieces of of the puzzle and why I think a lot of our society is sick with addiction. Um, in Return to Food, I have a an illustration that says addiction is your body telling you you're not listening to your soul. And one of our biggest causes of addiction is disconnection. And in the last two years, we've actually had government-mandated disconnection <laughs> from other humans. And I would encourage you to um, follow the mandates of our creator over the mandates of man and to actually really connect with other people and your soul and your calling in life. When we work just for money uh, and we deny our calling, we are not listening to our soul. And so even if right now it doesn't make economic sense for you to give up your job, there's things that you can do for me. It's, you know, it's artwork, it's service. It's taking care of my parents. I, I've been taking care of a baby since um, she left hospital, uh, you know, and I've been doing, you know, meaningful work for organizations that I think are making the world a better place like children's health defense and um, life force Canada. So we're actually building a beautiful world. We're actually building a true healthcare system as opposed to a sick care system and tapping into the things that actually give you a deep sense of fulfillment and meaning service to other people in humanity and make you feel like you're actually part of making the world a better place rather than just feeding into the sick care system. I'd have to say it's one of the biggest breakers of addiction. Oh my gosh. So well put. Yes, absolutely. In fact, all 12 step programs, it's service first. When you make your outreach phone calls, you don't make them because you need something. You may come because you're hoping that you can show up for somebody to say, how's it going today? Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything? I, I think that's why we're here. Beautifully put. Our gifts about how can we help others get through this human experience. I love that, Sherry. Wonderful. What a beautiful interview. Thank you so much for sharing all your, your wisdom and your kindness, your love and your wisdom with us. It was really appreciated. Well, you're an awesome interviewer, Florence. You you ask great questions and you give space to to have them answered, and um, that's a that's a great skill. You can teach <laughs> Oprah a few things. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you would like more interviews, more information, and more inspiration on how to break up with sugar, go to my YouTube channel, Kick Sugar Coach, or my website kicksugarcoach.com. See you next week.